Well, good afternoon. afternoon. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Council of American Ambassadors Roundtable. And I would like to first and start to welcome our speaker and our guest, Ambassador Sondland. And I would also like to welcome all our guests and all our members of the council. And thank you for joining us today. And thank you for your time. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank Kathleen Chien and Jocelyn Young, because without their efforts, none of this would be possible. So thank you. So today I have the enormous pleasure of introducing our colleague and our new member of the council, Ambassador Gordon Sondland. And Ambassador Sondland is from Portland. He is a businessman and a very well-known philanthropist. He is the founder and the former chairman of the Providence Hotels, which is a national owner and operator of full service boutique lifestyle hotels. He is also the director and the managing member of the Aspen Companies, which is a diversified private equity firm. Currently, he's a member of the US Bancorp Advisory Board and also serves on the board of visitors of the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke in North Carolina. Uh, through his wife and his family foundation, he has supported many causes, including the Portland Art Museum, the Pediatric Spine Research at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children, the Cancer Research at Oregon Health and Science University, and the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Center at Duke University. In 2018, he was appointed to serve as the 20th U.S. Ambassador to the European Union by President Trump. So welcome, Ambassador Sondland. Perhaps we'll first start by your presentation, and then we'll follow up with some Q&A as time permits. And if I can please ask the audience to submit your questions with the Q&A icon that you have on your screen. And then those questions will be read to us and uh, Ambassador Sondland. Please, the floor is yours. Welcome. Thank you, Ambassador Vosch. It's uh, it's great to have a good friend uh, also serve as the moderator, and I'm honored and humbled to have been invited to join this organization. Um, it's it's really great to be with you today. You know, when I was asked by President Trump to be the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, I gladly accepted. Honestly, I would have accepted the role no matter which president was asking. I considered it an honor of a lifetime to serve the United States. And most of the time, most of the time, it was a lot of fun. I have personal ties to Europe that made me feel particularly drawn to the job. My parents fled Germany during World War II and made their way to the United States. I grew up in a house where German was the first language and where the connection to the European continent and its people were strong. That said, I was able to build a successful career in business thanks to the opportunities my family found here. And the fact that this is the land of opportunity was not something they or I will ever forget. It was especially meaningful to me that I had the opportunity to do sort of a return trip and serve as ambassador to the EU. I wanna cover a few important issues regarding the US-EU relationship, areas where we work well together and areas that need improvement. We need to come together on some pretty consequential issues and we need to do it immediately. It doesn't matter which party resides in the White House. If we continue to squabble with the EU, one of our most important allies, 
we are essentially fiddling while Rome burns. China and Russia, they need to be our joint focus. Now is a critical moment for us to put aside our petty arguments and many pointless pro forma meetings. We need to immediately harness the joint power and heft of the US and the EU. With the changeover in administrations, we have a brief window of benevolent goodwill in Europe that we should use to our advantage. That sounds crass, but in reality, what's good for us is good for them when looking at the state of things on a global scale. When we act together, when we act together, we are truly formidable. Our combined GDP is about 40 trillion. We have 5 trillion in two-way direct investments, which fuels almost a trillion two in goods and services. It means 16 million jobs on both sides of the Atlantic. If we stand together, no one can stop us. If we squabble or dawdle, China is definitely waiting in the wings to step into this gap. I know we probably all have a bias that makes us believe our own ambassadorship was special, but honestly, the role of the US ambassador to the EU is somewhat unique. Unlike a bilateral ambassador, this person works on policy relating to all 27 EU member states, 28 when I was ambassador before Brexit. Different administrations have treated the role with varying degrees of seriousness. Some past presidents have focused little to no attention on the EU post, which is a mistake that can't be repeated for reasons I'll get into in a bit. Others have made the post like a mini version of the White House since the EU has pretty much every cabinet agency represented at the mission in Brussels, defense, commerce, treasury, justice, USTR, and the list goes on and on. And that fact allowed me and my staff to engage directly with cabinet secretaries to move whatever agenda they had forward and making them more amenable to what we might recommend from our vantage point. For, for instance, Sonny Perdue, who was President Trump's Secretary of Agriculture, had specific things he wanted to accomplish, for example, regarding the importation of American chicken or beef to the EU. The normal approach would be that the Secretary of Agriculture would call the Secretary of State, his peer, and describe the issue. S would then task an Assistant Secretary for EU Affairs to look into it, who would then talk to someone on the NSC to arrange a team approach, and the whole thing would become very time-consuming and convoluted. Instead, the Secretary of Agriculture and the US-EU ambassador could get together, make a direct approach to the Minister of Agriculture of the EU to discuss the issue. And this tactic is exactly what I like to do. It was really effective, although it drove the career folks a little crazy until they saw the results happen and happen very quickly. The bilateral ambassador to a European country, as you know, owns the relationship between the member country and the US. That said, the EU ambassador obviously has a role to play in how European countries interact with the US and how the EU country interacts with the EU as an entity. One way that I saw my position had a unique value in dealing with the EU leadership. 
I tried immediately to get close to whatever country held the presidency of the council. During my tenure, it was Austria, Romania, and Finland. And they had representatives uh, speaking for their positions. Thanks to the great cooperation of the bilateral ambassadors in Vienna, Bucharest, and Helsinki, we identified quickly what the leadership of these three countries wanted from the US and we strategized how we could help them achieve it. I knew that would be put by me, and I mean by the US in their good graces, and in turn, it would help the US achieve its own goals. For instance, in the case of Romania, I knew that President Johannes wanted a closer relationship with President Trump. And he also wanted some additional military presence in the country because it would give him greater credibility with the Romanian people to help him achieve some of his domestic goals. I, alongside of the bilateral ambassador to Bucharest, helped arrange a White House meeting between Johannes and Trump, which was viewed as a success from both sides. In the case of Finland, the Finns wanted more interaction with NATO and NATO leadership. So I helped arrange a meeting for the SAC here in Helsinki to meet the Finnish president and his minister of defense. Then we pressed on the Finns regarding what we wanted from the presidency of the EU Council, things related to trade, China, and at the time, the JCPOA. While the press likes to make a big deal about people operating outside their lane, I would argue that the relationship between the US and EU is not just about what happens in the commission, but what happens with the board of directors, so to speak, the leadership of the member countries. Another unique element of the US-EU ambassadorship was the fact that the mission in Brussels was a tri-mission made up of the US-EU ambassador, the US ambassador to Belgium, and the US ambassador to NATO. One of the important things is that all three get along really well. We did, but I heard anecdotes of other times when that has not been the case, where people got a bit territorial. That can't be the case because, for example, US, EU, and NATO work together on a lot of things. And we need to, in order to remedy the situation that exists right now, in terms of how few European countries are paying their fair share of dues to NATO. It's a bit ridiculous that we, the US, are spending over 3% of our GDP on defense, while Germany, for example, contributes nowhere near that amount, and then is also off buying gas from Russia, filling Russia's coffers and allowing them to fund more of their malign activities, which then NATO has to be called in to help counter. While we love the Germans, and Chancellor Merkel overall has been a terrific leader, this is an issue that cries out for strong leadership. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline will serve Russia's purposes even further and make the Germans and the rest of the EU more susceptible to Russia's whims. This is where we were able to horse trade strong Romanian pressure on the Germans in exchange for some items that the Romanians had on their shopping list. As I'm sure you're all aware, I was a political appointee and I have the utmost respect for my career colleagues. But politicals are often maligned by the media as incompetents who end up as diplomats simply because of their check writing skills. I have to say in conversations with many of the world leaders that they actually prefer political appointees.
These leaders already have plenty of subject matter experts on hand. What they really want is someone with access, discretion, the ability to follow through and to close a deal. As in every post-election era, political appointees are getting the usual negative coverage in the press. And I think it would be great if we could all comment more publicly about the fact that we essentially are citizen volunteers who leave full and satisfying lives and business pursuits to serve our country. Our business skills and acumen in other areas gives us a perspective that is appreciated by host countries and organizations. Political appointees are a vital part of US diplomacy and it would be great to have more of us speak out on that fact. I also strongly believe that the US-EU should be a political post. It should go to someone who has a close relationship with the President of the United States and the Secretary of State and who demands a regular high-level meeting that involves them along with the leadership of the EU. The stakes are too high now for the post to be a ministerial position. Historically, the US and the EU have always had its ups and downs. Right now, some would say there are more downs, but the relationship is also at its most honest point in decades. And that's a great place from which to move forward. When I, when I arrived in Brussels, I promised that I would not sweep aside our differences. I focused on productive, realistic dialogue and looked for every opportunity to do away with formalities and to focus on substantive issues. The Trump administration was known for being more transactional in its interactions with Europe than we have been in the past which isn't a negative thing. It sounds like a bad thing when described by the media, but frankly, that's a disservice to both sides. The whole idea that the US and EU are part of this loving family and that when we make demands of each other, we risk hurting each other's feelings, this obscures the vital national interests on both sides of the Atlantic. I'd say to the Europeans, stop telling me you love me, tell me what you need and I need, and we'll figure out how to make a deal. Instead of talking about how much we love Europe and doing some big apology tour, I sincerely hope that the Biden administration focuses on a few big things that need to happen immediately. First, on China. While the US and EU bicker over one trade deal for years and years, China has accelerated to unprecedented levels of growth flouting international laws and norms in the process. China steals intellectual property, threatens its neighbors in the South China Sea, persecutes its ethnic and religious minorities. It's been buying up ports in Southern Europe and infrastructure all over the world. Communications of tomorrow are being built on Chinese 5G hardware, which they're installing at an alarming rate all over the globe, making the users extremely vulnerable to their influence and their intelligence gathering. 5G will be a game changer and the US is sorely lagging in its development. We don't produce the same turnkey solutions that China does. They develop a product, provide the related management and installation services, and they even come up with a financing, which we haven't done with 5G. 
we need to divert some of our budget into doing so. And this would not only be a good investment, but it would also help us protect friends and allies from malign influence. There are already European companies in the 5G game, such as Ericsson or Nokia. Together, these two companies, if united, could have a comparable share of the 5G market as Huawei. So why aren't the US and EU working harder together to box out China and create a 5G network using US and EU technology and hardware? We need to tell people what they stand to lose when they deal with China so why it's in their long-term benefit to not get entangled with the Chinese, even though the immediate cost appears far lower. Second, on Russia, we need to call out their aggression and make it clear they can't act like a 19th century empire. During my time at Post, I fought for energy diversification in the European markets. As long as Europe is dependent on Russian gas, which will become even more the case if Nord Stream 2 proceeds, Russia will always have a political lever to pull and cash. And believe me, they will use this lever. Twice in the last 15 years, Russia has cut off the supply of gas to Europe on a whim. A full court press should be put on Germany relating to Nord Stream 2. Just as the Keystone pipeline was recently killed while well under construction, Nord Stream 2 could be significantly delayed and hopefully at some point permanently shelved. Instead, it proceeds with the blessing and buy-in of the Germans. We should figure out what the Germans want and need regarding energy and make it plainly clear that in doing business with the Russians, they stand to lose a lot more than they gain. President Trump, as a pressure point, used cars German cars to get them to reconsider their support of Nord Stream 2. The Biden administration needs to do the same, put the pressure on the Germans in a way that they will feel it and respond. Europe's vulnerability to Russian energy inevitably becomes a United States headache. Also, I wanna talk for a second about the recent humiliation of EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell by the Russians over the Navalny situation. This is a prime example of how the US and EU should work together when one of us encounters a setback in order to achieve an end result that makes our relationship stronger. We should immediately come to Borrell's side with a strong statement and some type of a sanction. The Russian takeaway needs to be that when they snarl, the US and EU act in concert and do so quickly. Third, on trade, we have about a 13.5% share of the EU market, and they have about a 22.5% share of ours. Simply put, we need to rebalance that. I supported our administration's stance that we really, that we really make a move on correcting our trade imbalance with Europe. Europe creates barriers in the form of regulations that block entry for US goods and services. The thing is, we each have excellent standards, the highest in the world. We should just agree on things like food, drugs, air travel. I'll accept your standards and you accept mine. For example, our car seat belts and theirs. One of our seat belts protects passengers at a lower speed and another 
protects passengers better at a higher speed. We should both accept each other's, that each other's cars are safe and move on. Europeans love to complain about our lack of standards, yet they don't haul their cars or their meat or their tomatoes over here when they come to visit. It's not really about safety or quality, it's about protectionism. Europe loves regulations and micromanaging American companies. Most of these American companies, however, are essentially quite European. They're based in Europe, they're staffed by Europeans and led by Europeans, and most importantly, they pay taxes in Europe. But because they have American ownership, they are not treated with the same deference as a purely homegrown European entity. This isn't really a partisan issue. When I hosted some of the Democratic Party's most senior leaders in meetings with EU officials, in those meetings, it was crystal clear that while the Democrats disagreed with President Trump on just about everything, when it comes to fixing our trade imbalance with the EU, there was actually very, very little daylight between them. So what to do? Tariffs, real or threatened, get results. As I just mentioned, Trump got aggressive on German cars, and now that car makers are set to increase their investments in US factories very, very significantly. We might disagree how he went about it, but his methods did produce some results, and quickly. For too long, the European markets have unfairly shielded themselves from American companies through blatant protectionism. And Trump's bull in a China shop style appeared to rattle and anger the European leadership in public. But in private, I learned that actually many were glad that at least it was creating some kind of forward movement. To some of the European leaders, Trump was seen as brilliant and to some he was an utter disaster, but he knew what he wanted and was bound and determined to get it. The Europeans then were forced to either push back, concede or negotiate. At least this ended a fairly sclerotic relationship. So when the US and the EU stand together as partners dealing with any adversary, we are much stronger for it. When we push back together against strong authoritarian rule in Russia and the single party system in China, our cooperation legitimizes and strengthens our resolve. Our relationship is much, much more than just a trade or security agreement. Our partnership is based on commitment to democracy, rule of law, open markets, human rights, and promoting peace and security around the world. Europe and the United States have a long history of standing together against aggression, and we must continue to hold that tradition. That has never been more important than today. When I was in Brussels, we obviously didn't solve all of the major issues between the US and the EU, but we did make a lot of progress. And we scored some legislative and trade victories in addition to many victories which can't be discussed. We had a more frank and honest exchange of ideas than we've had in years. I sincerely hope that President Biden and Secretary Blinken continue to have open and honest talks with our European allies. Our relations with the EU are important for the simple reason that we together are pretty much unstoppable. Apart, who knows?
Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador Sondland, for that uh, a very broad and insightful presentation. And uh, as we're queuing up the questions, perhaps I can take the liberty of asking, uh, what do you see as the main obstacle to, to the, the strengthening and continuing to strengthen the EU-US relationship? And what's, what's preventing it from being brilliant and uh, unflappable? Focus and follow through. Um, are probably the two things. Um, you know, I often advocated uh, to deaf ears a literally every other week check-in call, at least between the Secretary of State and the HRVP, in this case, Mr. Burrell, even if it was a short call, just to touch base as you do with, if you're in business with your partners, with your key leaders in your company, because so many little things stay little when you have communication at the highest level. They tend to blow up when those things are neglected. And then I also thought that the President of the United States, whoever that is, and the President of the European Commission should again be speaking on a regular basis without a lot of fuss and formality, at least monthly. And that has not happened. Thank you. Uh, Kathleen, do we have any questions already? Uh, yes, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, we have one in. This is from Ambassador Hughes. Um, he says, congratulations, Ambassador Sunland, on your excellent and insightful presentation and your focus on the interests that the US and the EU share. That said, the EU, Germany in particular, has become almost evangelical about today's climate change orthodoxy. And what can we do to keep the EU's climate change orthodoxy from combining with the Obama administration's climate change fixation to seriously damage the US energy mix, energy independence and energy price levels that ensure US export competitiveness? Uh, Ambassador Hughes, uh, thanks for the question. I think it's a great question. I think that orthodoxy uh, whether it has to do with the Paris Climate Accords, whether it has to do with the JCPOA vis-a-vis -vis Iran, whether it has to do with a lot of agreements. I think people cling to agreements and don't cling to ideas and principles. And I think everyone agrees, even the most sort of strident anti-environmentalist agrees to some extent that the earth is warming, that it's somewhat man-made, and that we have to do things to reduce our CO2 footprint. I think focus on specifics, what I call gradual incrementalism, instead of embracing these, you know, these, I, these documents as religious uh, things uh, and saying, oh, you're not in the Paris Climate Accords, then you must be anti-environmental when you when you look at what's in the Paris Climate Accords and you're doing a lot of the things that are already in there, why don't you get credit for that? So I think a focus on specifics between the US and the EU, what we can do without eviscerating our, our mutual economies, bringing those along on the planet that aren't doing it, because again, we could be uh, perfect environmental citizens, but if India or China or others are polluting, uh, our moral leadership isn't going to, you know, cool the earth down. It's going to take everyone's efforts. So I think a focus on tangible specifics 
and small incremental transactions rather than trying to embrace these large unwieldy agreements. TTIP was another example on trade. Um, it collapsed of its own weight because it was so big and so complicated that what we really needed to do there was just start embracing principles and closing deals, one little deal after another. And, and you know whether it was a tariff issue, whether it was a, a non-tariff barrier, whatever it was, just start doing it instead of trying to wait for everything to come together at the same time. Thank you. Kathleen, is there another question? Um, there, there is a question in from um, Dennis uh, Coleman-Jett, um, and he's asking about um, your contribution to the Trump's inauguration and how, how do people see that with regard to when people get um, ambassadorships, if they make contributions to campaigns? Well, I think it's a long uh, and storied history from both sides of the aisle that political appointments come from the fundraising side of political campaigns. Uh, whether it was President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, many, many, many ambassadors came from that background, unless they happen to be close personal friends of the president or subject matter experts or something else. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I can tell you that what I did was I looked at the inauguration uh, menu when it was presented to me and I bought tickets for my family and guests to the inauguration at a certain level. And there were, I don't know, 50 or 60 others that purchased the same tickets at the same level. And only two or three of us became US ambassadors. Uh, the rest did not. Um, my interest in becoming an ambassador started almost 30 years ago when a friend of my family's who had served said it was the greatest job he had ever had in his life. And he had had some pretty incredible jobs. So I was always intrigued by the notion of representing my country using the skill sets that I developed uh, as, a, as a person, uh, as a business person, as a father, uh, as a philanthropist. Uh, and I worked in the political trenches, just as many of you have, supporting candidates from both sides of the aisle, driving people to fundraisers, calling friends for contributions, uh, helping my political party. And so I believe, as in most cases, my selection was not based on writing a check, but it was 30 years of really working hard for multiple candidates who never became successful candidates. Uh, I worked for Senator McCain. I worked for uh, Governor Romney. Um, but I put in a lot of time and a lot of effort, as did many, many, many of you on this, on this call. And over that period, my efforts were finally recognized when President Trump uh, became president. Well, th thank you for that answer. Perhaps I can interject another question. You had touched based on energy and in reference to the Nord Stream 2. I'm um, it, not quite understanding why the rest of Europe, aside from Germany, is not pushing back against completion, not only of Nord Stream 2, which is over 80% complete already, but also the, the Turkish, Turkish Stream project. Because essentially, at the end of the day, what's going to happen is for uh, selling out for uh, cheap Russian gas, that's only 
a temporary solution and it may turn to haunt Europe in the long run. Why isn't the European Union pushing back against this? Well, I'll tell you, the German lobby uh, with respect to Nord Stream 2 has been formidable. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, everyone is equal, as they say, but some are more equal than others. In the European Union, it's clearly France and Germany, as, as you all know. This has been a sacred cow for Germany and particularly for Chancellor Merkel. She and Putin have something going relating to this pipeline and they are adamant that it's going to be built. Um, but other European nations see things more from our point of view as I described in my remarks. For example, a law called the gas directive was passed about a year and a half ago and that was passed largely with the help of the Romanians who held the presidency of the European Council at the time. And they really asked us how we wanted them to vote and how we wanted them to guide this vote. And I remember being on a cell phone with the Romanian ambassador was sitting in the plenary session, casting her vote saying, do you want us to go with A or B? There was some amendment and I couldn't reach anyone in Washington. It was the middle of the night there. So I just made the decision. I said, we want you to go with B. And I called Pompeo afterwards and said, this is what I did for better or worse. He said, great. So, you know, getting the support, as I said, and I kind of touched on it a little too quickly, getting the support of the board of directors of the European Commission, which are the 27 leaders of the members is very, very important. And I think that move has largely been not neglected, but not emphasized as much as as it might should have been. A follow-up to that, because it is pretty astonishing. I mean, you're, you're threading the Nord Stream 2 pipelines underneath the Baltic Sea. So already the Baltic countries are ballistic on the, uh, God forbid, environmental catastrophes that could happen uh, with, with that lanes of shipping, which is, is critical for, uh, for them. And then you're, you're looking at the southern approach uh, through the Turkish Stream project to, to cut off the Ukraine from any source of income. I mean, it's a $3 billion or plus loss so far for the Ukrainians just with, 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 with the gas revenue that they were having from, from their transit revenue. It, it just doesn't pass the common sense test for the majority of the countries if they're looking fast forward. Uh, and so it is astonishing for watching it from the sidelines that somehow there's not greater pushback. And even in the United States, because at this point, we still um, are trying to work with countries like Poland to have the regional hub for uh, the gas hubs and where's all this for the United States? I mean, essentially we're losing money on this and jobs. Well, the, as you know, Ambassador, the Danes tried to block it for a while because it was going through their territorial waters. Yes. And then the Russians very cleverly showed them how they would wire around that and extract a price out of Denmark. So the Danes, after putting up a good fight for about two years, finally relented, which is what got the project to within, you know, only a few kilometers of the German coastline today. But it's still not too late. And if President Biden recognizes uh, how this creates, I mean, the thing it really creates, it's not so much the fact that the Russians can turn off the gas. It's the fact that this provides a tremendous amount of cash flow to Putin. Um, you know, and when he's not building yachts and, and dachas, 
Um, he's funding uh, a very, very aggressive um, incursion campaign uh, all around places we don't want incursion. And we're essentially funding that with a NATO members, you know, coffers. It's just silly. <laughs> well, let's move on. I think we have a few more questions and um, perhaps for the next question, Kathleen. Sure, we have a question in, um, this is on Russia and Ukraine. It's from Laura, I'm not who that is. Um, isn't your sound advice about working with like-minded European partners to counter malign Russian activities at variance with the actions you and the Trump administration took to pressure Ukraine over the uh, partisan US agenda? Uh, well, first of all, I didn't pressure Ukraine to do anything. Um, my mission in Ukraine was very, very simple and was actually laid out for me long before I took my post in, uh, in Brussels. Uh, in fact, as you all remember, going through FSI, we all got a briefing book about the parochial issues of our respective posts. And one of the most important issues in my briefing book was Ukraine and the EU-US uh, partnership vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Uh, literally within weeks of beginning my, my tenure as ambassador, my career staff set up several meetings at the mission with Ukrainian officials to emphasize their desire to have the U.S. work together closely with the EU, not just on a substantive basis, but a symbolic basis to show the Russians that there's no daylight between the U.S. and the EU when it comes to Ukraine. Uh, I took the Secretary General, Mr. Belliard, up to uh, Odessa. Uh, we had a joint event there. The Russians were really pissed off about it, which was, you know, delighted the EU and the US um, because they didn't want us there together. So my mission wasn't to pressure Ukraine into doing anything. My mission was to get President Zelensky to the White House to meet with President Trump, which never occurred. Um, a lot of other things happened that many of which I wasn't even aware of, but I had a very, very simple and straightforward agenda with Ukraine, and that was to get the U.S. and the EU to work together to support Ukraine. Thank you. I th well, we have a lot of questions. Okay. Um, Kathleen, what's sure. next? Uh, this one is from um, Ambassador Harry Harris, um, who says, this is a great presentation. Um, his question deals with the EU military force and its competition for the same resource pie as NATO. And how do you see this working out in the next few years? Hi, Harry, good to, good to hear from you. I know this isn't a two-way conversation, but uh, thank you so much for that really great question. One of my classmates at the FSI. He was way ahead of me in class though. He's much smarter. Uh, plus he's an admiral. Um, so the answer is, uh, this was uh, a bone of contention between myself and Mrs. Mogherini. Um, you know, she really saw herself as a secretary of defense more than she saw herself as a foreign minister. And she wanted her own army and her own forces under her command I think that was a pipe dream, but unfortunately, it drove a lot of policy. Uh, what we were trying to push for, we said, look, if you want to spend money on defense, wherever you spend it, whether it go goes through NATO or it goes on your own, if we can't stop you, at least make sure that everything you spend money on is NATO compatible 
that it can, you know, in the case of, of rolling stock, that it can fit on the roads and the bridges, uh, that it's what we need in order to defend Europe jointly. Um, and please collaborate with us. Please work with us on R&D. We had some limited success on certain issues, uh, but again, I wish I'd had more time because what you point out is absolutely critical. The money needs to flow through the NATO channels because that's where it's best coordinated. And Ambassador Sondland, on that note, um, how did, did you see that NATO would be capable of holding back, God forbid, in some form uh, of aggressive action, the Suvalki corridor? I mean, that uh, is, the, is the most um, exposed and most important part of land for, for the entire European Union. And uh, 63 miles, how, how is it possible to secure it? And do you think that Europe is serious about keeping the Slovakia border? I, I don't know how serious they are about it. I mean, let me put it to you this way, during several exercises that occurred uh, during my time at post, um, you know, and these were pre-planned exercises during peacetime. Everyone knew that you'd have uh, groups coming through their countries. They were being held up at, at country borders for days, waiting for paperwork, because somehow the word didn't get down to the person at the border. And you have all these columns of troops and armored personnel carriers and tanks sitting there idling their engines, waiting for someone to say, go. Can you imagine if actual conflict broke out? So I think your concern ambassador is very, very well placed. What I did to try to solve that problem, again, meddling where, where I didn't belong, was I asked our customs people to work with them on the ground so that when the first sign of a exercise showed up, that the person at the border basically said, we know who you are, keep on going. And our customs folks who are used to dealing in situations like this were actually a great deal of help. And the Europeans embraced that help. But your, um, your concern is very, very well placed. Well, thank you for commenting on that. Kathleen, uh, next question, please. Sure, here's um, another one. This, um, this person says, um, this is an area in which we may not have a dog in this fight, but the EU has taken a pretty tough stance against Poland's law and justice government over allegations of abridging democracy, imperiling judicial independence and press freedom, et cetera. Um, and um, let's see, since the Central European governments are also NATO members, what is the US to think and do about these EU intramural fights between its old Europe members uh, and the more nationalistic policies of the newer Central European members? Resist the urge to poke your nose into it is what we can do. Um, there are so many internecine issues that if we start to take sides on all of these things, um, it makes us feel good. Um, it aligns better with our own values. But boy, when it comes to the big stuff, and this is where what I said at the beginning of my remarks, when it comes to joining ranks, when things wind up uh, being a problem on a global scale, like with China, getting involved in some of these things, it's, it's, it really has to do with practicing restraint and making our views known quietly 
but we have to, you know, we don't have a dog in every fight, even though we would like to. Thank you, Kathleen. Um, yeah, here's another one sort of on trade and regulations. Um, you touched on standards and the challenge of mutual standards recognition with the EU. Um, two areas where we're running into increasing conflict with the EU are regulations, particularly in the agricultural sphere and competition policy. Um, can you expand on how your earlier observations about ways to minimize our differences might apply in these areas? Well, what's interesting is when um, President Juncker came to the White House for a, a trade summit in, I believe it was July of 2018, um, President Trump, uh, during those discussions, we had a meeting in the cabinet room with, with President Juncker and his trade minister, uh, Cecilia Malmstrom, who was Robert Lighthizer's counterpart. Um, President Trump said, look, we can make this simple. Let's see how this goes. We don't have to do it forever if it doesn't work. Let's drop all tariffs on both sides. Let's drop all non-tariff barriers and let's drop all subsidies. And let's try that for a few years and see. Now, if I can tell you, Jean-Claude, this is President Trump speaking to President Juncker. I can tell you, Jean-Claude, if the US auto manufacturers are unable to sell cars in that environment to Europe, because the Europeans simply don't like American cars, then that's our problem. Or likewise, if you can't sell one of your products to us simply because we don't like your product, it has nothing to do with tariffs, it has nothing to do with regulations, we just don't buy your stuff, that's our problem. Um, but beyond that, let's stop this protectionism and let the, you know, let the market forces decide how the trade, if there is going to be a trade imbalance, that it's a market force trade imbalance, not an artificially created one. And of course, President Juncker's reaction to that was, he said, I could never in a million years get that through, especially with France, because France zealously protects their agricultural industry. The small farmer that has, you know, two acres of tomatoes cannot compete with our huge corporate agribusiness. But then they use the excuse that, well, your tomatoes have GMOs. And you say, well, what do you care if they have GMOs? We put a big label on it that says GMO, and they sit on the shelf next to another tomato grown in France. And one is one price, and one is the other price. And the Europeans can decide for themselves if they want to buy a GMO tomato at $2 a pound or a non-GMO tomato at $10 a pound. And the answer that came back was very interesting. We don't let our consumers get to that point. We are here to make those decisions for them. And I've heard that time and time again. So that's what we're up against. Fascinating. And uh, Kathleen, any other questions? Um, there's a couple of, they're just sort of in on the issue of um, career versus non-career ambassadors and maybe sort of speaking a little bit more to, you know, what are the, the sort of the, the strengths that each each type of ambassador brings to the job and, and how can people work together and find the right balance there? Well, clearly the career folks have an extraordinary amount of background education and are steeped in the traditions of the State Department. They train their entire lives, uh, their entire careers, I should say, uh, to ultimately reach the rank of a four-star general, which is an ambassador. Uh, and so, they have a completely different outlook 
in terms of what risks they're willing to take personally, uh, how outspoken they're willing to be, uh, how much they're willing to support a policy that they disagree with. So they have their own characteristics. The political appointees, generally speaking, those that I've spoken with and I'll obviously myself, I viewed it as the day I took my papers and presented my credentials, someone clicked a stopwatch. And I had a very, very limited time to get as much done for my country and my administration as possible. So I viewed it as a race against time. I wanted to dispense with a lot of the things that took up time, but that didn't accomplish much. Yes, I wanted to have fun. Yes, I wanted to attend parties. Yes, I wanted to get to know people on a social level, but I also wanted to accomplish a great deal. So it's just a different mindset. And I do think that bringing private sector skill sets to a government institution like the State Department is invaluable. We're one of the few countries, if not the only, that really emphasizes political appointees. And I can tell you to a person, they might not say it publicly, but you talk to these foreign leaders and you say, you know, are you, are you okay with me? Or would you rather have someone who's just really, really smart about your country, speaks your language fluently, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, look, we have plenty of those people. We want someone who can make a deal and who can get us access to the people that we need to have access to. And I hear it over and over and over again. So th that's just kind of, you know, my own perspective. Well, thank you. If I can divert into another portfolio still for the re remaining a few minutes, um, can you share with us your opinion? What options does the United States and the EU have currently uh, towards Russia in reference to the detention of Alexei Navalny? Uh, at, at the end of the day, in, in front of the whole world watching, Russia decides to detain its political opponent. And to cancel, so to cancel and, and completely humiliate Mr. Burrell uh, when he recently you know, traveled to, to Moscow. Um, I think Lavrov just stood him up, canceled a meeting, et cetera, yes. et cetera. And they're, they're not afraid of the, U, of the EU, uh, and they should be. Um, and the reason they're not afraid is because, again, we don't leverage the power that I described earlier in my remarks effectively enough because we're too engaged in, in these squabbles that really don't mean anything. The bureaucrats love to you know, talk about their standards and their policies, but I can tell you, I could just feel it that we hit that nerve. When I showed up, it's a small, small thing. I don't wanna blow it out of proportion, but the press reaction, both the intelligence as well as the public reaction, when Jean-Christophe Belliard and I showed up in Odessa and made a big deal about, you know, crapping on the Russians. They had just taken the, the, the you know, the, um, the ship with the sailors. They did, the Russians didn't like it at all. And what they really didn't like was that there was no daylight between the US and the EU. That is the thing they're most afraid of. And the more daylight they can create, the more comfortable they are. So I, it may not have to do with Navalny at this point, but I think we need to start taking a lot of joint actions vis-a-vis -vis Russia so that when a Navalny incident happens, they know that, you know, in this case, Biden and Ursula von der Leyen 
are going to be at Putin's doorstep or on the phone together with no daylight saying this will not stand. Thank you, Kathleen. Do we still have another question? No, there's no more questions in the Q&A box. No, so we've, you've answered everything. <laughs> Thank you. This was really fun. Thank you, Ambassador Bush. Well, thank you, Ambassador Sondland. Welcome to the Council of American Ambassadors. Thank you for this uh, very in, in, informative and engaging discussion that we've had. Thank you for answering the questions. And we look forward to all being together in DC in the very near future. Thank you. So, so thank you with that. I thank all our, all our participants. Thank you once again for your time. And Jocelyn and Kathleen, thank you for putting this together. Thank you, and watch Josh, your emails. As well. And watch your emails for the next update on, on our next roundtable. So thank you and goodbye. Thank you.